standing for the reading of God's word. Psalm 86. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wonderful things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 7 through 16 this morning. The book of Jonah, chapter 1, verses 7 through 16. Well, fear is a negative feeling. I think the most of us, when we hear that word, or even just our recent experience of fear, it's a very negative kind of experience. Fear tells us to get out, to run away, or to, to fight, or flight kind of responses start to kick in. But that doesn't mean just because it's a negative feeling that it's a bad thing. Even that kind of fear that I'm talking about, it keeps us safe. When you feel afraid for good reasons, it helps you turn away from whatever you're experiencing. And when we read the Bible, we see that the word fear, the fear of the Lord in particular, seems to be used a little bit of a different way. It seems to talk about to revere God, to honor him, to, to recognize him as being God. Another way that I want us to think about that is to, to recognize that God outranks us, even in our own lives. Meaning you are not the boss of yourself, but you submit to and you understand that God is the one who is in charge. That's what the fear of the Lord when the Bible talks about it is trying to get at. That you understand that God is to be honored and revered in such a way that he can dictate your life. That you submit to him rather than running things your own way. And that we ultimately see that that's a really good thing because that God that we fear is a really good God. And when he has his way in our lives, that's... That's a great thing. And in today's passage, we see that fear is a theme in these sailors that we are encountering as they are with Jonah in the middle of this storm that God has brought on them. Last week, we talked about that, that the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea as a way to discipline Jonah. That they move from that first kind of fear that I was talking about into this 
fear of the Lord. That the passage begins, and they're afraid, and they're afraid for their lives. They're afraid this ship is going down, and they're going to die. But by the end of the passage, we see that they fear the Lord exceedingly, and the words are actually the same in the original text. But one is talking about this fear for life, and by the end, they fear God exceedingly, and they worship him, and they make sacrifices and vows, and we see that they fear him in a little bit of a different way. And so that's what we want to look at this morning is simply that. And as we look at that passage, this passage together, I want to ask the question, and it's just a really simple question, is do you, or do I, fear the Lord? When we think about God, when we consider who he is, do we fear the Lord? Do we believe God, do we function in this way that he outranks us in our own lives? Is God in charge of your life? Do you worship him? Do you revere him? Do you honor him? More to simply put, do you fear the Lord? So that's the question I want us running in the back of our minds as we look at Jonah, chapter 1, verses 7 through 16. I want to read the entirety of the passage, and then we'll walk through like we do Sunday after Sunday here at our church. Verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. He's talking about the sailors who are on this boat with the prophet Jonah who has run away from the Lord. Those are the things, if you weren't here last week, that's what happened in the first six verses of this book. God commanded Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah heads in the opposite direction to Tarshish and he gets on this ship and he finds himself on this ship and now a storm has come because God is pursuing Jonah. And these sailors want to know what is going on. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Verse 8. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you? The sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more temptuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Tempest. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord. You for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from his raging. Then the mere men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So we see again, if we back up the six verses before, Jonah has found himself on this boat that he has not just found himself, but he has put himself on this ship with these other sailors. Their lives are now in danger because of his sin. And his sin has led him further and further away from the presence of God. 
And these sailors are afraid. And so they come to one another, and for some reason, they know this isn't just some kind of natural disaster, that there's some kind of divine forces here at play. Now, maybe that's because they're just really superstitious, and they always think that about every storm. We don't know. Or maybe there's something that they know this storm is in particularly special. We're, we're just not really sure why, but they seem to think that there's some kind of divine power here at play, and they got to figure out whose fault is it. So they start to cast lots. And what that means is they would probably, most likely they had two flat stones. You can almost think like a, two coins that we flip. And on one side of the stones, it would be black. And on the other side of the stones, it would be white. And they would throw them up in the air. And if the stone turned over white and black, they would recast it. That was kind of like just a draw and we'd redo it. But if they got it and they were both black, that was probably a no answer to whatever question they were doing. If they were white, it was a yes answer. So they would ask the, the stones or the powers at B these kind of yes or no questions, and they would flip up these stones, and that's how they would know. And so they start casting these lots, and the lot falls to Jonah. I don't know that this is a great, like, practice. I don't know that this is a good way to make decisions, to start, like, flipping coins or doing whatever. But what we see is, is that the sovereign God of the universe, the God who can hurl a wind upon a great sea, he ensures that they get to the bottom of this matter. I don't know in their false, ide- uh, their false idolatry and false worship where maybe they were doing these kind of casting lots and just a little bit ago in the last six verses, they're praying to fake gods. I don't know that that always works out for them. But in this scenario, God is sovereign and God wants them to know that it's Jonah. And so the lot falls to Jonah. So they start asking them these rapid fire questions. What is your occupation? What country are you from? Who people are you? And really at the core of those questions, it's just, who are you? What are you doing here? What are you doing on this ship? You know, that, that question of what is your occupation could be translated, what is your business here? Why are you, why are you on this boat? And so in all of that, it seems like Jonah answers them and he tells them the whole story. But in that, he tells them, I serve the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. He tells them that he fears the Lord, the God of heaven. And even that phrase, the God of heaven, is a weird thing for a Hebrew to use, but most likely he's talking to the sailors who are probably Phoenician, who had served Baal Shaman, which if we translated that as the Lord of heaven, it's almost like Jonah is telling them, I serve the real God of heaven. I fear the Lord, the real God of heaven. And my God made the sea and the dry land. And it's this kind of like weird, awkward thing is this prophet of God is going in the wrong direction and he's claiming that he fears God even though he goes in the totally wrong way and he tells them the whole story. And these pagan sailors look to him and they say, what did you do? It's awkward and it's empty and it's hollow. He's saying, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord. I fear him so much I'm just going in the opposite direction, not listening to anything that he's telling me. And these sailors are basically saying like, well, let me get this straight. You serve the God of heaven. He's better than all of our gods and they're not listening. We've been crying out to them. We're in trouble. You serve that God. That God created the sea that we're on right now and the dry land that you're supposed to be on right now. And you, your idea, your thought was, I'm going to get away from the presence of that God, and I'm going to go in the opposite direction. And they look at him, and they say, what is this thing that you have done? Jonah, are you crazy? You say with your mouth that you serve that God, but then you're going in the wrong way? 
What have you done to us? Pastor Paul Tripp, in his comments on this very passage, he, he points something out, and I find it to be very, very helpful as he talks about our cognitive theology versus our functional theology. And what he simply means by that is cognitive is like the things that we think or say. He says, you know, we can think we believe in God, but how do we actually function? How do we actually live our lives? Do those things actually line up? The things that you say you believe about God or even hold in your mind to be true about God, do they flesh themselves out in the way that you live your life? How do you actually function? And he kind of gives this distinction of our cognitive theology and our functional theology, basically saying, as the old saying goes, actions speak louder than words. See, Jonah says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. But he's going in the wrong direction. If Jonah had a true fear of God, he wouldn't be on the ship heading to Tarshish. He'd be on his way to Nineveh. Because that's what God has commanded him to do. God has told him to go to Nineveh. And he's in the wrong direction. See, a false fear of the Lord, when we claim that we fear God, but we don't really fear God, it will render God's discipline in our lives. And that's what we're seeing happening here. Jonah is claiming, he's saying with his lips that he fears the Lord, but his actions speak louder than words. He is going in the wrong direction. And so the Lord, in verse 4, we're told, hurls a great wind upon the sea and causes this great storm to happen. Now, I think we can hear this, and we can look at this kind of thing, and we can say, you know, we look at the story of Jonah, it's so easy to look at him and say, listen to God, and if you don't, you're going to get swallowed by a fish. You know, listen to God, and if you don't, your big storm's going to come, and that's what's going to happen. And if you don't listen to God, then God's going to, he's going to smite you down, and he's going to discipline you, and you're going to have all these bad things happen to you, so shape up and listen to God. But what I want to point out is something different. See, for those of us who are believers who find ourselves in this place where we are saying with our words that we fear the Lord, but our lives don't really match up, we're living a double life, we're not going the way that God would want us to go, that kind of false living will render and bring about God's discipline into your life. But listen to what the writer of Hebrews tells us in verses 6, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. He says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. So we need to see in this passage is while Jonah is doing everything wrong, God loves Jonah. He's not just going to let Jonah sail away, away from his presence. In his love for Jonah, he has hurled a great wind upon the sea, and he has brought his discipline into his life. If you go down just a couple of verses in Hebrews chapter 12 to verse 11, it tells us this. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. 
If you are a Christian and you're here today and you're going your own way, what you need to know is that God will have his way in your life. There will be nothing that stops the Lord from having his way in your life. God is saying, once you are his, you are always his. You cannot outrun his grace or outsin his grace. You are in his hand and nothing will take you out of it. But God's means of grace in the life for the wayward Christian is his discipline. He brings in his discipline, whether it's the great storm or what we'll see in verse 17, a giant fish to swallow him up. God isn't going to let Jonah get away. And that's a really good thing. While it's a fearful thing to be under the discipline of God, what we need to see is the discipline of God drives us to repentance and it drives us back to our Heavenly Father who loves us and cares for us. And while the discipline that you may be experiencing in your life, those feelings of guilt and shame or pain or whatever is going on, is painful rather than pleasant, if you submit yourself, if you truly fear the Lord, if you say, God, you outrank me in this world, it will yield a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If you allow the discipline of God to train you to submit to his ways, it will yield righteousness. God will change you. And that's what we need to see is while false fear of the Lord renders God's discipline, God's discipline will render about a true fear of the Lord for those who are his. Unfortunately for Jonah, he still doesn't get it by verse 10. Jonah doesn't repent of his sin. He comes clean with the sailors because he gets caught. He doesn't say, hey guys, there's no need to cast lots. I'm the guy. He knows he's the guy. But I don't know, maybe he's hoping they don't go his, you know, they don't really go his way. Maybe he'll be able to get out of this, but he doesn't. And even then, he, he claims this kind of fear of God, but he doesn't cry out to God for mercy. He doesn't admit that he's wrong. He just kind of keeps going, doesn't he? Instead, what we'll see next is that it's the sailors that call out. You see, a true fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, it cries out and it calls out to God. Picking up in verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. That's a weird idea. I don't know why he does that. I don't know why he thinks, you know, just throw me overboard. Other than what we've seen of Jonah so far is he's still in escape mode. Jonah is just trying to get away from God in the presence of the Lord. He's gone into the ship. He's fallen into a deep sleep. He's not crying out to God when everybody else is crying out to their gods for mercy. And now Jonah's solution to this problem is like, just throw me overboard. It's all my fault. Just get rid of me. Nevertheless, verse 13, the men rode hard. So I guess they kind of agree with me a little bit. That doesn't seem like a very good idea. Now, I don't think they're like super good and righteous guys. I don't think they're saying like, no, Jonah, we're not throwing you overboard because they eventually do. I think they're thinking, this guy just claimed that he serves the God who made the sea and the dry land. Like, I'm not throwing him overboard. Like, you, you think we're going to die now? Like, we're, de- we're definitely going to die if we throw him into this water. 
So they start rowing. They're like, ah, that's, that's a bad idea, right? We're going to row our way to the dry land. That's what we're going to do. And they can't do it. They can't get there. Their efforts are in vain. They're futile. And they come to the end of themselves and they say, well, we're not going to make it one way or another. I guess this is the best idea that we have. So they try to get back. They could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Therefore, they call out to the Lord. It's the same verb that, that's used in verse 2. God tells Jonah, go out to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it. That's God's command to Jonah. Jonah, go call out against the city. These men have cried out to God, even false gods. They've been calling out. They've been crying out. The sea captain comes, and when he wakes up Jonah from his sleep in the previous verses, he uses that verb again. He says, call out to your God. We're all going to die. And Jonah somehow makes it to the top, but we don't have any record that he calls out to God, and he kind of remains silent as they're casting these lots until he gets put on the stand. Who are you and what's going on? Why is this happening to us? Then he finally comes clean and he still isn't calling out to God. But now you have these pagan, non-believer sailors in fear for their life saying, oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood for you. And they then say something that I think is so astounding to me. People who do not know God, all they know is what Jonah has now told them. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. True fear, a fear of God, it calls out to God. But I think when we do that, what we see is that it calls out to God and recognizes who's in charge. God, you have done as it has pleased you. We don't understand We're not really sure why he wants to throw this guy overboard, but we're going to do it. Because God, you've done what has pleased you. I think our prayers need to look more like this. Lord, I don't understand what's going on right now. I don't get this difficulty. I don't understand this hardship, why this is in my life, what is going on. But Lord, I know this. You do what pleases you, and I know that you're good. So I'm going to continue to walk, and I'm going to continue to trust you. It makes me think of Jesus in the garden. Jesus, before he is crucified, he goes to, with some of his disciples to pray in a garden. And he's praying, and he's pouring him out before the Lord. And he asks God, like, if there is any way for me to not have to die on the cross, if there's any way, would you take this cup from me? Meaning the cup of God's wrath. If there's any way I don't have to go through this, will you do that? But then he says this, but not my will be done but yours be done. See, a fear of the Lord that is right and true goes to God and says, I don't know that I get all this, and I don't know that I really want to go through all this. And we can be honest with the Lord, and we go before him, but at the end of the day, we say, God, but it's not my will, but it's yours be done. Lord, you do what pleases you. And I know that you're good. You are sovereign over us. You have not forgotten us in the difficulties. There's a song called Blessings, written by a woman named Laura Story. My mom used to love this song. It is everything that a middle-aged woman would love about music, but it's got some really good lyrics, so I'll still read off the lyrics to you. Verse 1, it says this, We pray for blessings. We pray for peace. Comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing and for for prosperity. 
We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. And all the while you hear each spoken need, yet love us way too much to give us lesser things. That's a really good lyric. Do you believe it? I believe people who fear the Lord, people who understand, God, you know what you're doing even when I don't know what's going on. They believe that kind of lyric. See, if we believe in the goodness of God, that he is inherently good, and he is, then when we experience the sufferings of life, even sufferings that we bring about, Jonah is not here by some kind of natural circumstance. He's in a situation because he's a sinner going in the wrong direction. So even when we do it to ourselves, or even when it's not, when it's just we live in a broken, messed up place, and bad things just happen, Will we look at those circumstances and say, is God good? Or will we look at them and say, God is good. Now let me understand what's happening around me through that lens. See, I think Laura's story is right. We want ease. We want suffering to go away. We just want to be healed. We want the prosperity. We want to be comfortable. We just want the blessings. But the blessing in the song is that you are being changed into the likeness of Jesus. And so she writes and she sings, yet you love us way too much to give us lesser things. Don't just pray for calm seas. Pray for God's will to be done in your life. Can we be like him? Can we be conformed to his image? If we learn to seek God's will more than our own, we do that as a result of the fear of the Lord. In a fear of the Lord, it will ultimately lead us to the worship of the Lord. Our final section this morning The fear of the Lord leads to worship, picking up in verse 15. And so they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So they come to the end of their cells. They can't get back to dry land. And so they pick up Jonah and they hurl him into the sea. And there's more language play that's happening here. The, the episode kind of starts off in verse 4 with the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And now it finishes up there in verse 15 as these men hurl Jonah into the sea. And I just put myself in that situation? What would it be like to be in the middle of the storm that just continues to rage on? It becomes worse and worse and worse. And you're rowing and you're rowing and you're rowing and you're told, if you throw me in, everything's going to calm down. And so you take this guy and you're just like, well, here we go. You throw him in to the ocean and all of a sudden it calms down. I think I would be exceedingly afraid of the Lord as well in that moment. That's an amazing thing to think about, to, to put ourselves in this situation. So these men, they fear the Lord exceedingly. And they offer sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Mishnah, which is just a Jewish tradition, these guys become legitimate converts. They like go back, they make vows to God, and they live out their days as uh, God-fearing Gentiles. uh, The the one true God, Yahweh. 
that's a tradition. We have no idea if that's true. We don't know if that's what really happened. We have no idea if they are like that or if they're like, you know, every movie that you've ever seen. Like, oh, Lord, if you just get me out of this, I'll never, ever disobey you ever again, right? And then, like, the next scene, the guy gets out of it, and he's just as much of a pagan as he was before. We have no idea what these guys do because in the book of Jonah, this is it. Their story ends at verse 16. We don't hear about these fellas again. They're done. And as we look at the book of Jonah, we have to see, we don't know, are they genuine believers? Do they really fear God? And, and what are these sacrifices? Do they have live animals on this ship that they're able to sacrifice? Or do they just make a promise and they sacrifice? Like, we just have no idea. And we can ask a million questions of the text, and it just doesn't have any answers to it. But here's the point, because that isn't the point. The point of God's word when you read it isn't so much about these sailors and what they're like and if they're genuine followers of God or not. That's not the point. The point isn't if they fear God. The point is, do you fear God? The point is, do I fear God? When we read his word and we let it reflect into us, the point isn't to think through, what about them? The point is, what about you? Do you fear him? Do you love him? Do you honor him? Does God outrank you in your own life? That's the point. So that's the question is, what kind of follower are you? In Matthew 13, Jesus tells this parable, which is just a, a story meant to teach a lesson. And he tells a parable of the sower or a farmer, this person who goes and scatters seed. And he scatters some seed and it falls to, on a path and the birds come and they pick it away immediately. He continues to scatter seed and he, some of it falls on rocky ground. And the roots aren't able to get deep into the soil. And so when it springs up, the sun comes out and it scorches this plant and it does not live. Other seed falls within the thorns. And when it grows up, the thorns come and they choke them out. And that other seed falls onto good soil and it produces 100-fold, 60, and even another 30. And then Jesus ends the parable and he moves on and he talks about something else for a little bit. And his disciples come back to him and they say, what was that parable about? Why? What does that mean? And at the end of Matthew 13, Jesus explains the parable of the sower. In verse 18, Jesus says this. He says, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes up and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. And as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold and another 60 and another 30. So here's Jesus's point is the gospel comes and it spreads to us and we hear it. There are those who immediately reject the gospel. They come and the enemy of this world takes it away out of their hearts. They have immediate hostility towards the gospel. And he says, these are like the people where the seed falls on the path. But yet there are still others, and it doesn't seem to be true, legitimate converts, but others who hear the gospel and say, wow, that sounds like really good news. I really want some of that. 
but they're rocky soil and they never grow deep. Their roots never go deep into the gospel itself. It's just very surface level. And so when the sun comes, persecution or difficulty or trial, they have no root. They may endure for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. The moment there's opposition because of the gospel, they say, I don't want any of this. I wanted all the good stuff. I don't want any of the hardship that comes with following Jesus. So they fall away. And there's also those who are among the thorns, which just represents those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the world. And it proves unfruitful. It's the reality of, of the the things around us to what do we really fear? What do we worship? What do we see? Do we fear the Lord or do we want stuff? Do we want riches? Do we want these things? And they come and they choke out the word in our lives. But then there's the good soil. See, the good soil is the one who hears the word and understands it. And he bears fruit and yields. And in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, in another 30. That's what Jesus tells in the parable of the sower. And as I look at the end of Jonah 1, and we look at this theme of fear of the Lord, and I pray about you, and I think about you, I want to ask you that question. What kind of soil are you? Do you fear the Lord? Does he outrank you in your own life? Now here's... What I want to see is is, is we have to look at that and we have to say, we have to answer that question honestly. Do I want Jesus or do I just want the good things that kind of come with Jesus? Do I want Jesus until something else better comes along? And then when this better thing comes along, well, I want to go do that instead. And that's the deceitfulness of riches. And it's going to come, it's going to choke out the word in your life. Or are, are you... Good soil, good soil that understands that this is better than anything else. That the gospel of Jesus Christ outweighs everything. And you fear and honor and revere God in such a way that you would say, man, there is no riches that compare to the riches that are in Christ. There is no kind of thing. Everything is worth to be endured. The persecution and the threats is worth to be endured for godliness. That I, I want to reach de- deep down into the soil of God's word and not be taken away or scorched out by the heat of life. And I want to produce. I want to see other people come to know Jesus. I want to grow and become more and more like him over time. And that's what we have to ask. And that's the question we have to ask this morning. Now, here's the difficulty of that question or preaching a sermon like this, even for me. And my fear is that you hear this and you think that the point of the sermon is shape up. Be better. Try harder. Quit lallygagging around. Be serious about your relationship with Jesus. Now be on your way. As if you can do that all on your own. Because here's the truth. You can't. All on your own, you are not going to be able to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and be obedient to God. You need God. And that's what the fear of the Lord is all about. It's the recognition that I can't do this on my own. That I need the Lord to help me. So I want to close with this. In the book of Colossians, Paul begins to pray for the church in Colossae. And I want to pick up kind of halfway in verse 9 of chapter 1. 
as he says this, he's praying for them that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Basically, I'm praying that you're good soil, that you bear fruit, that you bear good works, and that you increase in the knowledge of God. And he's praying that for them. But listen, listen to verse 11. Being strengthened with all power, according to what? According to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You don't shape up, and you don't increase in knowledge, and you don't grow in pleasing God, and you don't produce good works because you just try harder. Fruit of godliness comes as a result of God's work in your life because he transfers you out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son. You don't need a change of circumstances and you don't just need to try harder and get your act together. You need a change of heart. You need to be changed. Another way to say that is you need to be converted. Now that's something our culture doesn't like to talk about. Just let everybody live their own way. That's the whole point. You cannot live your own way. You fear yourself more than you fear God. The point is, do you fear the Lord? Are you converted? Do you fear him above all else? And not a terrifying fear, but a fear that reveres him and honors him and says, you outrank me. Because when we stand before a holy and living God, the Bible tells us in 1 John 4 that perfect love casts out fear, and he's talking about the fear of the punishment of sin. That if we fear God in the bad way, in that negative way, it's because we're afraid that God is going to punish us for our sin. But those who believe that God has sent his son to die for our sins, what John 4 tells us, know that God is love, and that perfect love casts out fear. And you don't need to be afraid of God that he's going to punish you for sin, but rather we learn to fear the Lord, to revere him and to honor him and to know, God, you are God. You're in charge. And that's my hope, is that you would see that we need to be changed and different and that you would be like these pagan sailors, and hopefully they are legitimate converts, that you would cry out, God, have your way, do what pleases you, that you would fear him and worship him, that we'd give our lives to Christ, to submit to his reign.